this is the I Read Comic Books podcast. I'm your host, Tia, and this is not an interview. I have some hopefully good news for you, which is that this bonus series is actually going to be monthly because, well, it's fun to talk to people about nothing, and I hope it's fun to listen to. For our second episode, I'm chatting with Magdalene Visaggio, writer extraordinaire of Kim and Kim, Quantum Teens Are Go, Transformers vs. Visionaries, Eternity Girl, and some exciting upcoming titles that I think we'll discuss along with truth, beauty, freedom, love, and who knows what else, probably. The revolution. Revolution. Death. Hi, Mags. Hey, what's up? Um, not too much. Just uh, hanging out in this beautiful, gray, freezing cold spring day. Yeah, and it was like 70 fucking five degrees yesterday, and I have to wear a I walk outside in a coat. Yeah. No, this morning because... was nice. Sun was out for like two seconds. I don't know. I'm sure. I mean, I good. like it chilly. Like, I don't like it cold, but like, and like, this is like perfect. You know, you need a jacket. That's what I want. I have to admit, I kind of feel like I'm getting rickets or whatever that disease is where you don't get enough sunlight. Isn't, isn't rickets just chicken pox as an adult? I, I think so. Like sad Dickensian disease. I mean, I imagine if you're getting chicken pox as an adult, there's not a really inspiring story behind that. <laughs> uh, so Eternity Girl is like two for two making me cry. Okay. I don't know how I feel about that. Well, I think it's I think that it's a good thing because I think people who are going to identify with Caroline are probably people who need to feel something. I mean, yeah, I think there's, you know, a degree of that and there's uh, a lot of personal shit I have to go through when I write it. So, you know, I, I uh if it's fucking up other people, <laughs> it really fucked me up. <laughs> I don't think of it as fucking up so much as just like giving you something to think about that might be useful, but that is also hard. I mean, I'm never trying to like give anybody anything to think about, but I mean, if they're, if people are taking stuff away from it, that's cool. I always just try to create an experience, you know, like I just want people to, to like feel something in it, you know? Yeah. That's kind of, I feel like all any of us are, in this line of work are really trying to do just evoke some kind of emotion i don't like message you know or at least being messagey mm -hmm. i think that people who have a lot of depression that they deal with don't trust happy feelings as much and so it might be easier to be confronted by something sad or difficult it just is it, maybe more familiar ground and yeah i've often wondered about that the way like when you're feeling down, you want to listen to sad music. Yeah. And I think it says a lot to the fact that happy things, it's not so much that you don't trust them, although maybe this is what you mean. It's not so much that you don't trust happy things, is that it feels not quite mocking, but but almost like foolish. Yeah. That like, like if you're listening to All Star on like a really bad day, <laughs> an already banal song is going to sound profoundly more so from its disconnect that song just like follows me around and haunts me. I, I love All Star. <laughs> that does not surprise me. I have me. a whole conversation with you. In fact, you know what? Fuck what we were talking about a second ago. Because I'm talking about All Star now. Um, <laughs> I have a theory. Everybody likes that song, but we're all embarrassed. 
or liking it. Like that was a song that everybody loved. And then all of a sudden, like 2004 or some shit, we're all like, you know what? Fuck All Star. And it became <laughs> a joke. And I think that we all still secretly like it. I think that all of it, when we come on, when it comes on and we like say, you know, say shit about it. I think it's all just being like, I don't want anyone to think that I like it. We all know all the words. And, you know, you get a little adrenaline hit when you sing it. And it's like, it's not to like. I know. I agree. Okay. Why why have we never karaoke'd? Because I don't karaoke. Oh, okay. All right. I'll have to figure out a way to just like have us do a spontaneous sing along. I mean, I do sing along to my guitar at home. Yeah, I was going to say, maybe we could figure out like a... I know how to play All-Star. <laughs> that does not surprise me. I also have um, I Want It That Way in my repertoire, Part of Your World from The Little Mermaid. Wow, okay. I Want to Be Like You from The Jungle Book. Is there a way that we could like write a medley of all of these songs so they just like seamlessly transition one into the next? I mean... Probably. You just have to write all these weird transitional things. I mean, like, you know Weird Al and his polka medleys. Oh, God. He takes a whole bunch of um, just songs that happen to be popular at the same time and just rams them into a, you know, six-minute-long marvel. We need to make this happen. (laughs) You could, like, put the chords in the back of one of your books for and, like, people could learn it so that we could make it be a... It could be the new Anyway, Here's Wonderwall. Yeah, I don't think that would work. (laughs) My um my my favorite like archetype is like the douchebag at a party who sees a piano and just sits down and starts wistfully playing. Imagine like he's saying something profound about the world instead That's... of just being a guy who knows one song. <laughs> I mean, you just described like literally every person I was friends with in high school and college. No, me too. Me too. <laughs> I was exactly that piece of shit. <laughs> uh, but and I'm very much thing is i'm not like anywhere here's wonderful i'm anywhere here's anyway here's hotel california oh no <laughs> it's me i don't and i don't even announce it i'll just start playing it and generally it's in the middle of the second chord that people real pardon the third chord <laughs> will realize what's going on and then they all just look at me like <sighs> really but then they join in i think if you yep. started playing all-star people would give you a different response it doesn't sound as good on an acoustic guitar. Doesn't it, though? Because I'm really into, like, very aesthetically different covers of songs that everybody knows. Oh, okay. Well, then I actually did one of those of All-Star recently. Okay. <laughs> but, like, but, like, yeah, um, like, um, Obadiah What's-His-Face's Hey Ya. Oh, yeah, yeah. Back in the day. Mm-hmm. I believe that's from back in the day, but that granted, that song itself came out 15 years ago. Oh, Jesus. I think I mean like postmodern jukebox is the obvious place to find all of these. Oh my god, they do a they do a call me maybe that I don't hate, <laughs> and I fucking hate call me maybe. Wayne Brady did a thriller for them that was like Cab Calloway inspired. Yeah, Wayne Brady. Yeah, Wayne fucking Brady. This into it the the one and only. Yeah, what song he did thriller. He did Thriller, but it's like Cab Calloway aesthetic. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's amazing. Oh, my God. I'm going to listen to it. That's so fucking much. <laughs> Remind me later because I'm probably going to forget. I will. Well, this is being recorded, so. I mean, I'm going to listen to it. <laughs> All right. So 
Are we allowed to talk more about Eternity Girl or have we moved on to... Yeah, we can like, talk about Eternity Girl. Okay. Because talk about whatever. I don't give a shit. <laughs> well, I'll let you know if you're getting in territory that I can't discuss. Okay. But I don't think there's really a lot of that right now. <laughs> I know. You, I, one of my, the things I love about your Twitter is that you just talk about everything. I mean, what what's the point otherwise? Well, I think that a lot of people try to maintain some sort of curated persona no, I do. <laughs> but my, my curated persona is is me just a lot cooler. It is very cool. I I think everyone should follow you. It's just fun. I mean, like, like I'm just a giant, like, bookish stay-at-home. I'm not even bookish anymore. I don't fucking read anymore. I know, me too. I feel like such a freaking fake. Oh, my God, right? Because, like, like and I'm trying. This is going to be my weekend where I was going to read. And, nah, just watching OJ Made in America. Well, that's legit. That's like it is legit, but I'm in the middle of a book, and like, what and book? I was like, I uh, SPQR by Mary Beard. How is it so far? It's, uh, it's really fucking good. It's goddamn fascinating. But I, you know, still have to finish it at some point. And I was traveling a bunch, so I read a ton. And um, well, I stopped traveling. But you're sort of. I feel like you are. An amateur, um, and I say amateur only in that you, you're you not like pursuing a degree or anything, uh, American historian. And so OJ is just a, it's an important historical moment. No, and like, and that's, I mean, that's legit fair. I, I actually really love American history. Um, I've sort of been on this quest now since, God, college to just like, because I just wanted to like understand how we got here and think of ways to make American history feel less default to me and feel more like, well, this is like processes that happened similar to how things happen in other parts of the world and stuff like that. Because, you know, we still grew up that tendency to sort of see ourselves as almost not even having a history, you know, like a past, but not a history, but we totally have a history and we do have all these rival societies in the country and all these rival ideologies and, we just have a very particular system for dealing with that stuff. Do you think that the American exceptionalism is, is like able to thrive because of that misconception about past versus history? Oh, I mean, I think that's that's kind of the only thing that makes it possible because we don't have a history. What we have is like a narrative. Mm-hmm. And we feel, always feel like, I rem- actually, I remember thinking when 9-11 happened that, that oh, so this is what history is like. Right. Because that was a thing that was like a thing that like, that like mattered and it wasn't just sort of the, the middle-class model of just, you know, just one thing of just one thing after another, which is how a lot of, you know, a lot of the way we present American history is in a series of inevitabilities. And one thing that I've become increasingly fascinated by, and that's part of the reason why I'm watching, you know, uh, uh, OJ made in America um, is that I'm increasingly interested by the, like, all these par- the, the sort of the parallel societies we have, you know, between like sort of like the white mainstream culture, black society, and then you got things like gay society and stuff like that. And not all have their own histories and their own practices and their own relationships with institutions that we would classify in terms like criminal. But when you get past the, the veneer of law, if you're looking at it, you know, from like an outside perspective, you just have these different layers of authority and these some almost quasi-state actors operating at like on like uh, uh, urban levels, and I just get fascinated by that because it's 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 the sort of stuff that had happened in India 
we'd be like ethnic violence, right. you know, and but that but and we're like, oh, well, that doesn't happen here, except it literally absolutely always happens here. It happens all the time. It's not something we're immune to or something that, that we've that we don't have any experience of. And I feel like we tend to think that at least since World War Two history is over. Yeah. And that just kind of like there's just kind of been stuff happening since then. But it's but but history's over. And I'm I don't know to think like just in public school and public high school. At what point did they does history stop and become civics? I mean, we, I never ran into that. I'm, I can't remember where um, what the most recent period we studied in American history was. It was probably the, up to the mid 80s, oh, maybe wow. maybe up to Desert Storm. Yeah, I, th- I, I went think- to a really good school and I was in like AP history and stuff. So I'm not necessarily <laughs> the best model here. I was in a poor neighborhood in a fairly well-off school district. It worked out for me. Yeah, they usually don't like that. Yeah, but, you know, that was a sitch. I think that for us, I think that we stopped at, like, civil rights, and then it became civics. Yeah, I know. I just don't really remember the distinction. I definitely remember having at least some conversations, you know, regarding Reagan and into Desert Storm, but... I don't think we got too much into it, you know, because at that point, like, you know, history is so recent. How do you even talk about it? Because at that point, you know, it's the it's the mid 90s talking about things that were often four years earlier. Right. You know, so it's like, how do you even how do you even have those conversations in anything approaching an objective way? Like it's sort of thing. How do you talk about, you know, the 2016 election to kids without imparting a POV. No matter what side you're on, it's this huge event that has meanings that reverberate to this day. It's current, it's debate, it's not even civics, it's it's uh it's not even policy, it's just like like zeitgeist. You know, you can't have mm-hmm. conversations about it that are objective because the consequences are all immediate. No one knows what's coming. And so everything becomes a matter of like expediency. Well and also you know I think that we're old enough to remember a much different kind of world. And so we have a different perspective on more immediate history. Whereas if we're trying to explain something to kids who literally have no context outside of that thing, it's, it's a lot harder to not, I don't know, editorialize. I think. Yeah. True. Because like the world did really change. Like, at least in a bunch of visible ways. Even if all that was was that we were wiping away veneers, I feel like there's this really interesting, and I've said that in an academic way, and if I'm talking about it, like, from terms of personal perspective, it's amazing the level of dis- the levels of distance I put between myself and my life. But if we're going to be, like, like experiential about it, things are happening, lots of really unsettling things are happening across the world. You know, the, the, the rise of, of, you know, right-wing nationalism throughout the West, you know? Like, yeah. we talk about Trump, and we talk about Brexit, but this shit is everywhere. France narrowly avoided it. Poland hit it. Yeah, I was recently reading about how in Norway they're they're worried Norway. that disenfranchised young white men are going to become a problem. Yeah, I mean it's happening all over. It's here. It's everywhere. And I remember shortly after I can't. This was was it Brexit? It was shortly after Brexit. I was reading this article that was sort of describing the, the state of the world. And it was it was one of the most unsettling things I've ever read. And basically it was like we have a, a social order, an entire social order constructed on the back of World War II. 
which rested on the United States sort of filling the role of the producer of everything in the world. And despite the fact that that hasn't been true for a really long time, we built our entire economic world system on that assumption. Right. And that over that, that started to fall apart and hasn't been true for a long time, but it was that system was falling apart. We put all these hedges in and all these stop gaps to, to keep it running. But there was no way to keep a motor that was dependent on a part that hadn't been there in decades running forever. And so that everything we've been, ha- we've been seeing for the last couple of years is just the breakdown of that post-war order, a post-war economic order in which we sort of depended on perpetual economic growth to push cost of living down forever and push you know life quality of life up. And that's what undergird decades of social progress was that there is a sense of economic stability. And when you start to rock the economic stability, everyone gets nervous about what losing what's theirs. Mm-hmm. And they start thinking in terms much narrower than we'd been trained to. And so is that we're looking at the world and we're seeing, oh, these are problems that were always there. Yes. But we're also looking at the world and seeing, well, these are problems that have been exacerbated by, by other conditions. And in the same way that like, you know, World War II happened because of the economic dislocations caused by the, the, the first World War. Nobody set out to, to have a race war. They set out to have a, a nationalistic war for Germany. And that just went out from there. You know, we're it became a very, racial- very serious I'm sorry I just I know you're very well read and thoughtful about history have you ever do you have any stories in your back pocket that are set in in the past I feel like I associate you more with these like badass future kind of sci-fi stories my my favorite back pocket this is a weird thing that happened in history is I don't remember the exact year it's the 1830s Andrew Jackson is president and someone decides they're going to kill Andrew Jackson. And they had lots of good reasons for this. Like sure. Andrew Jackson, not the world's greatest president, um, had a bunch of very controversial policies even in his own day. Guy decides he's going to kill Andrew Jackson. So Andrew Jackson's giving a speech and this guy jumps out of the crowd and runs upstage and he pulls out a gun and it doesn't fire. And it doesn't fire because it's Washington, D.C. and it's humid and it's just poor quality gunpowder. Of course, it might get damp and not fire. So luckily, he brought a backup gun, pulls it out, doesn't fire. <laughs> and he's out of guns now. And that's when he realizes something terrible has happened. And he just looks at Andrew Jackson, who's like six foot four, staring him down, taller with his hair. And, <laughs> and Andrew Jackson proceeds to beat this guy nearly to death with a cane. What? Yep sitting president of the United States. You know, nothing surprises me anymore about sitting presidents of the United States. Oh, no, no, <laughs> at all, at all. We have, we don't have a, we don't have a leg to stand on anymore. <laughs> idealizing that office. It's so, the dignity of the presidency. So whose story here are you most interested in? This poor sad sack who gets the shit beat out of him by Andrew Jackson or like this president that goes around giving people a, a walloping with a cane. I mean, it's kind of hard to avoid Jackson. He's got this absolute just outsized massive presence, utterly dominates every story he's in. Everything is, that happens is in reaction to him. Right. Um, I feel that way about Teddy Roosevelt, all those pictures of him like riding moose or whatever. 
And I mean, yeah, you, you, you run into that again and again. If you're the sort of person who's prone to seek the office of the presidency, I can't <laughs> imagine you're someone who's like pretty, you know, like restrained personally. And it's okay. We're not doomed. It's fine. I don't think we are. I know. Actually, so going back like several minutes to what I was going to ask you about Eternity Girl and Twitter, you said on Twitter recently that one of the struggles of writing this was that you you felt like you were arguing a position that you don't actually believe in terms of like yeah. the nihilism of it. And I wanted to talk to you more about that because I feel like that's a conversation that we have a lot. Yeah. And so... I overstated my position a little bit on Twitter in terms of saying I don't believe it. Um, I don't know what I where I stand on it, and but I'm uncertain enough about it to be uncomfortable arguing for it forcefully, which is what needed to happen. There's a point later in the book where and this isn't a huge plot spoiler where someone is talking about like like it's okay to be meaninglessness, to be meaningless. You know, mm-hmm. it's okay to not have a purpose. It's okay to just be a, a an entity in the universe. That doesn't mean that it doesn't matter because then what matters is what matters to you. Right. There's not like an objective, you know, list of priorities. It's just here's what matters to you. And that's not a position I'm super comfortable with, but it it was needed in the moment in the book. And moving forward in terms of that sort of thinking is something that Carolyn is really going to have to do. It's, there's going to be so much in the story that's just about the about about the experience of subjectivity, the experience of having a, of being an experiencing being. Yeah, which you know, if I may, sucks. It is too much responsibility that I never asked for, and you really- couldn't ask for it because there would have been no you to ask. Exactly. <laughs> there's no well, I- responsibility according to this line of thinking if you accept that there's responsibility, and if there's not, then there's not. Well. The consequences of that's a different concept. It's a responsibility. Con- Catch up with you. Consequences and responsibility are related but non-identical ideas. <laughs> um, I something like totally random that I was started thinking about when I read the second issue, which came out this Wednesday, was actually dead. The black metal guy who committed suicide. Wait, wait, wait. What? Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know how familiar you are with the whole like history of black metal and and the murders and the i am not even remotely familiar. oh yeah okay so i'm probably gonna get parts i know where guar was founded i don't know if that counts not quite yeah so this kid literally um he would like bury his clothes before shows so that he would like smell like the earth and carry around dead creatures so he would smell like death his name was dead that was his stage name and he yeah so he he committed suicide i can't imagine very young and his note basically said sorry for the blood and his friend and and sort of like bandmate when he found him immediately went and got a camera and as like an album cover and made necklaces out of the guy's like skull fragments and also apparently made a stew out of his brain and ate it and i mean these guys these guys were like not all about like the kiss theatrics they were like no you have to actually do these like you have to do it uh, and then later on we get into like white supremacists and church burnings and murders and things that like it gets even darker but 
Like um, every substance does eventually. Yeah, but dead. There's a theory that he had um, Cotard syndrome, which is where you believe that you're dead. No, yeah, I know all about yeah. it. That's um, like I've been fascinated about for years. So, as I was reading Eternity Girl, it just it actually it made me think of Cotard syndrome and and like the the problem of believing that you're immortal but also dead or wishing to be dead no actually that's definitely an influence i've always, i've been fascinated by catards i'm fascinated by a lot of abnormal psychology stuff but catards is something that i as, as someone who is super morbid and thinks about death a bunch right um, catards has obviously been something that i really gravitated towards i actually first heard of it on scrubs where there's a minor character like he's a gag character who's got catards and he's always just narrating to himself about how he's dead and everyone's like you're not dead like yelling at him <laughs> um, because he's really annoying about being dead he's like being dead at people right. you know <laughs> um <laughs> but so just the idea that like like the the sort of the walk like walking corpse syndrome the idea that like you could just be walking around doing stuff but also be convinced that you're dead on like this metaphysical level or even on a purely physical level just really fascinated me um because i'm someone who grew up no like it kind of sucks but also like i I, i've spent half my life you know dealing with depersonalization and derealization and so the idea of being like well i'm not a person or i'm not real it's that's actually not too far from being like well i'm dead you know the difference you know depersonalization isn't like isn't like for me isn't like a delusionary state you know like it's weird. I don't know how to describe it. Maybe I'm wrong about that. I'm not going to make like pronouncements about, you know, clinical psychology. Yeah. That I'm not qualified to make, but it does seem like there is a distinct difference between believing those things and believing in those things, but also having some sort of perspective of understanding that you understand them. Yeah. Like, so I guess that's what it feels like, but maybe that's just, sort of staring at subjectivity and looking at mental illness in the eye and being like, oh, it's actually not that, not a hard line there, is it? Isn't Uh, the line crazy people don't know they're crazy? Yeah. But, I mean, there are crazy people who know they're crazy. Yeah. But, but yeah, so like depersonalization, derealization, those are experiences of mine that that have their stamp all over Eternity Girl. There's really no way around that. Can you talk a little about your collaboration with Sunny Lou? Because I just feel like the art and the story go together so perfectly. So Sonny came aboard. We had been spending a lot of time trying to figure out who he wanted to draw the book. So when I originally pitched the book, I um, wanted to bring in Paulina Ganeshow, who had done the Element Girl short with me mm-hmm. uh, in 20, or I guess, I guess that was, that was published in January, 2017. And Gerard thought that she just kind of didn't have the right darkness for the book, which I don't necessarily agree with, but it's his imprint. So we started like batting around other names, like Chris Anka, Mike Diodato, um, uh, Brett Parsons all came up and we couldn't like, we couldn't, nothing, nothing felt like we were landing it. And then uh, I sort of remembered that um, I'd really loved Sonny's art and Dr. Fate, which is the only thing from him I'd read at that point. So I just sort of floated his name and everybody was like, oh, that's, that's perfect. And, uh, you know, we looked into it and he was free and we brought him on, on board. Um, the collaboration is mostly through Andy, our editor, because he lives 13 hours away. Mm-hmm. Like, he's 13 hours ahead of me in Singapore. Right. Um, so more than 13 hours away. Uh, <laughs> it is the other side of the world. Yeah. 
And so that means, so sometimes I'll like, I'll like wake up to messages from him that he sent me at like two in the morning local time. Um, like our, like my time. And, you know, I'll try to like answer those as best I can. But during the actual process, it's really all mostly, mostly mediated through Andy. So is it like as fun a surprise for you when you get to see these pages? Well, I mean, like it's, um, it's pretty, I mean, the, 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 it's all pretty uh, normal in terms of like structure, the structure of the process. He sends in his uh, thumbnails and we, you know, go over, me and editorial go over and approve the thumbnails or request changes. And then he does, you know, like, uh, then he does his inks. Um, so it's not like, I don't know what you mean by like, it's not like a surprise, except in as much as I haven't seen the art before. And I sort of never know what he's going to do. It's been really interesting watching him interpret my scripts because he he does he takes things in very daring visual directions. There's this little bit at the end of issue three, and I don't even really know how to describe it. I've never seen a comic structured quite like this, um, and certainly not like a not like a, a big two publication, you know, probably in, in many years that I've ever seen anything like that. And um, I'm, I'm very excited to see how that actually like plays out, you know, once it's on the stands, it's uh, it's, uh, it's very different. I love that sort of thing. I mean, I think that's part of why I've really enjoyed Eternity Girl so far is because I mean, there's just so much on the stand that's the kind of the, the big two formula. And I think it's nice to see something from those publishers that kind of surprises you or does something really I don't know complicated and makes you think and and isn't what you expected yeah and that's always like the point about young animal you know is about being unexpected about doing things that you you don't see in comics you know I mean what's shade the changing girl like what it first of what an amazing book I'm convinced it's the best comic on the shelf right now um but that's a story about like an alien who takes over the body of a teenage girl and then has to learn about being a teenage girl and all the insanity that goes into that while also dealing with the fact that she's an alien with a super-powered magic coat. Like, I, it's a book I don't know how to explain it to people. I without, <laughs> I've lost my mind. Like, I've had, like, a, like, a, like fucking out a stroke. <laughs> but it's, uh, um, it's so intelligent. It takes risks and it was such a big influence on eternity girl to be honest they definitely seem like they go together and not in terms of that like one came after the other and or anything like that but just that they they belong in the same in the same collection yeah and i think that's um really true of all the all the young animal books but i don't know shade influenced eternity girl in ways that i i can't even really define i just i liked not how weird it was, but how it was weird. Yeah, that makes sense. Because it isn't yeah. just weird for the sake of it as an aesthetic point of view. It's really part of the character and the story. Yeah, and so you look at something like um, like um, Doom Patrol, and that's weird for the sake of weird. And that's not to knock it. Like, that's an aesthetic decision um, that they've made. And that's its own kind of experience, its own kind of anarchy, its own kind of cast. But I've always liked about Shade... And so Shade's a book that's also in a lot of ways about poetry. And it's a book that uses its weirdness poetically. And not in a way that I mean that like it uses it uses it in ways uses it in ways that'll be like in you know, like schools, but like, kind of the symbols of blah blah blah. You know. 
but in ways where just like it feels resonant and coherent, you know, like it doesn't have the chaos, but it, it has like a direction. It has a focus. It's moving towards something. That's a really good way to put it. I agree. And so that's kind of what I wanted to do. I wanted to be weird in the way where the weirdness wasn't overwhelming, where the weirdness pointed toward, toward something, toward an endpoint, towards a goal that the story is trying to get to. I, I can't wait, but I also don't want it to end. I wish that it were an ongoing. But then some stories, I think, need to be contained. Well, if we ever did another volume, I mean, I already know what I would do for another arc. And it would be, it would be there'd be such a distinct demarcation between the two arcs that, yeah. they're, that they're very much, they're two parts of the same story, but they're also their own thing. Can you talk about shifting gears from doing these distinct arcs to doing an ongoing I have no idea what I'm doing with an ongoing. <laughs> um, I'm writing arcs. <laughs> well, I'm writing yeah. arcs and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to experiment a little bit with serialization elements. I've never really tried serialization. We studied it a little bit, you know, when I was doing the, the DC workshop. Um, and so I know the technique, but I'm, I'm after attempting to implement it like deliberately in advance, I realized that that was not going to work, that I just have to start, I have to let it happen on its own. I have to like find, I have to sort of find that rhythm. Yeah. That's exciting though. I'm so excited. I am too. And at this point I've now written 10 issues of Kim and Kim and I sort of can't believe that. That's a lot. I feel like it just got announced. I don't think I've, no, 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 no. 10 issues of Kim and Kim total. Oh, not for the, not for the ongoing. No, I've written two issues for this. Got it. It just feels really weird because, like, I've spent more time with these girls than I've probably spent with any characters I've ever come up with um, in, the, in a more concrete way. I've never had this long-term relationship, uh-huh. you know, with my characters. <laughs> so that's a very unique part of this for me. So something that really interests me about writers and the relationship they have with their characters is it seems like some writers – have complete control over their characters. Like I, I asked Wendy Peeney if it was hard to make her characters do what she wanted for 40 years. And she was like, why are you even asking me that? They're my characters. I make them do what I want. But there are other writers who I feel like their characters get away from them and fight with them and ask them for things. I don't know. What what kind of relationship do you feel like you have with them? It's... um. I, I have never found that my characters have been overtly rebellious. The most, probably the biggest moment in terms of a character kind of getting away from me was this, this comic I was self-publishing years ago. And there is this issue where these two characters that had this kind of simmering tension where it was kind of going to break out in a super-powered fight. And um, I'm in the middle of part of the scene and I'm like, oh my God, he's going to kill him. <laughs> And there was no way, there was no way it wasn't going to happen in that moment. I was like, I was like, he's going to do it. He's going to kill him. And which is not that I, that hadn't been my plan. Right. That had not been my plan. I had an issue. If I had further issues planned out, this was a ridiculous arc and it's a whole thing. But like I had, a, I didn't have any plans for the character dying, but there it was in that moment. I didn't know how else it could go. And so I, I, I went with it. Kim and Kim surprised me in the sense that, I never have issues where they're where they're not going where they need to go, but it's very interesting sometimes the ways in which they choose to get there. Like it, it's just 
it's just weird how a scene can develop in some very anarchic directions, especially with Kim and Kim, because, you know, you have um, a player who's just like almost committed to being self-destructive in Kim Q. Mm-hmm. Um, that's like a, 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 not an amazing personality trait of hers. She, she, she is very self-destructive. So she, she's always destabilizing situations and she destabilizes them in ways that aren't always what I plan for them to be. And then I have to sort of like sort of make the plot sort of U-turn <laughs> or zigzag back to where I want it to be. Even you suffer from this unattractive tendency that your character has. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so also tell us how to pronounce. Are we allowed to say oh, shit. shit? Oh shit, it's Kim and Kim. It would have been oh shit, but we were like, we don't want to deal with trying to get the word shit into diamond. I see your cat in the background and I just got really distracted. Oh yeah. Yeah, he's just being a cat. Yeah, that's what they do. No, sometimes they're actively doing things, but right now that's the only thing he's doing is being a cat. He's a good uh, cat. Okay, so back to swearing. No, yeah, but yeah, you can you can say shit. It's oh shit, it's Kim okay. and Kim. Oh, oh shit, it's Kim and Kim is coming out when? I want to say the last Wednesday of June. Okay, cool. Well, I promise people I won't keep them longer than an hour unless they're Kieran and they want to talk for two hours about crying. Um, which is fine if you want to stick around and talk more about death and politics no, and work, cats and things. Stuff. I have to work on, um, I have to break a, a, a mini series this afternoon. That sounds important and we should definitely let you go to do that. Yeah, I don't want to. <laughs> okay, well, before you go, is there anything else that you want to tell us? is coming out that we should keep an eye out for that we should pre-order i mean we covered everything the major stuff eternity girl first issue of that just dropped this past week i mean second issue dropped this past week bigger queen is in may and oh shit it's coming kim is in june you you have so much going on yeah it's a lot right we can put all of we can put links for all of this in the show notes well bam yeah we're very fancy like that all right and where can people follow you on twitter or otherwise find you on the internet um everywhere that matters i'm at max visags m-a-g-s-v-i-s-a-g-g-s and you can find me on twitter at portrait of madam x you can find the show at ircb podcast or in our goodreads group or our website ircbpodcast.com you can email the show at ircb at destroythesibe.org and please rate the show subscribe tell your friends we love to hear from you infinity shred is the very best they do our music and xander the audio wizard is also the best thank you for listening thank you mags for hanging out with me thanks for having me always a delight and thank you everyone for listening